I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. And we are going to go ahead and get rolling for tonight. Um, We're going to go ahead and get rolling. So Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place. And we just thank you for... um, for an opportunity that we have to come together and, and grow deeper in our understanding of the things of truth. And so, Lord, I ask of you tonight for your presence to be felt in this place. I ask for um, our, our biblical questions uh, to be answered as we study Scripture. I ask for us to go away with something to meditate upon so that our minds can be renewed about what your truth has to say about the way that we live uh, as a disciple. And so, Lord, I, uh, I ask above all else uh, that you would be glorified uh, through our discussion um, and through the teaching of your word. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen um, and amen. So um, we are going to kind of take a little bit of a different route. I've been spending the last week or so just asking uh, the Lord what he wanted me to do uh, about this evening and and where I should go. And so we're actually going to deviate uh, from, Romans, uh, from Romans tonight. And I'd like to ask all of you to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, for those of you who, how many of you were actually here last week? Okay, so uh, almost every single person in the room uh, was here last week. So, uh, part near, the, I would say near the end of our discussion, uh, we got onto the topic of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and there was a lot of debate, and there was a lot of conversation, and a lot of really good questions, a lot of different perspectives, and uh, I just sought some counsel on Thursday uh, from my mentor, uh, and then just prayed through the weekend about what God wanted me to do, and I felt uh, that as a church body, I should address uh, the spiritual gifts to us uh, and unpack the text here and hopefully answer your questions. Um, and then we're just going to go from there. And next week, we'll just jump back into Romans and pick up where we left off in chapter 12. And so uh, we're going to start out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And now I'm not going to cover um, every single verse like I normally would. I'm going to cover things that I believe will be pertinent to us uh, before we jump into uh, another chapter. Let's start out in verse number 1 of chapter 12. And he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to pause right there for just a moment. That word gifts, uh, does anyone have a version of the Bible that the word gift is not present in that first verse? Anybody at all? Okay. So the word gifts here was actually added by the English translators in the 1500s. Literally in the uh, ancient Greek writing, it says, uh, now concerning spirituals is exactly how it reads. Uh, Now Paul is addressing the spiritual things because the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians he discussed all of the carnality that was seen and found in the church. But adding gifts by the translator here was justified by the context of what is about to be addressed. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uninformed. 
Okay, now Christians are given a reminder here by Paul that is good for each and every one of us. Okay, uh, perhaps Paul is addressing the church because they are ignorant uh, in regards to spiritual gifts and they shouldn't be. Now, when I use the term ignorant, can someone tell me uh, what would be uh, the correct usage of the word? Because oftentimes we see it in a negative con- uh, a light or a connotation. Yeah, go ahead, Ruth uninformed uh, or um, having no knowledge of uh, or unlearned in a situation. Not saying that someone is is stupid in any way, shape, or form, uh, but Paul is saying uh, that you are ignorant of these things and you should not be. Now, in Paul's letters uh, all throughout the New Testament, there are three specific things that he tells Christians that they should not be ignorant of. Does anybody know uh, what those three things are? Bible scholars, what are the three things in the New Testament that, Bible, that, that Paul tells Christians they should not be ignorant of? No, not explicitly. Um, there's one right here in the text. Spiritual gifts. Oh, thanks. Great. Someone got it. But there's another thing that we addressed two weeks ago in our study, and it's in Romans 11. God says don't be ignorant of God's, or Paul says don't be ignorant of God's plan for Israel. Okay, that's the first thing. He says, don't be ignorant of spiritual gifts here in 1 Corinthians. And then if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he tells Christians not to be ignorant about the second coming of Christ and the eternal state of following the second coming. Now, sadly, many Christians and, and sadly, many churches and many pastors will avoid those three topics. And just avoid them altogether. And this is the exact point and why Paul is addressing this. Do not be ignorant of these things. He wants you to know what the Bible actually teaches about them. Now, Paul made a statement that you know that when you were Gentiles, you were carried away by mute idols. By mute idols. And um, let's see, in verse number 2. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. Now, Paul is wanting Christians to remember that their past did not prepare them for an accurate understanding of spiritual gifts. And that really is is a challenge to all of us to know that our past teaching and our past experiences have perhaps built a very poor understanding of the Holy Spirit as well as the usage of the spiritual gifts in our lives today. Now, it's easy for us Uh, as humans uh, to take our materialistic and take superstitious uh, views or approaches to our understanding of the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will call Jesus accursed. Now, Paul is just laying down a very broad principle here uh, for discerning matters that regard spiritual gifts. He's saying judge things by how they relate to Christ. Did you guys catch that? Don't want you to miss it because it's very important in our understanding of the spiritual gifts. Judge things by how they relate to Christ himself. That's what Paul is saying. So does a supposed spiritual gift glorify Jesus? That's what Paul is asking us to do right here at the very beginning. Answer the question, does it promote the true Jesus or does it promote the false, the imitation of Satan? 
That's exactly what we see here in Scripture. So Jesus made it very plain. And for those of you who like to go back and like see uh, comparative passages or see verses that would connect to uh, other places in the Bible, Jesus made it very plain to us during his earthly ministry that the Holy Spirit would come. And in John 15, he said, the Holy Spirit would testify of me. But he also went on to say that the Holy Spirit will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. Meaning that the Holy Spirit's job is to always speak of and to glorify Christ himself. And so it's not to promote himself as an individual, but to glorify and represent which has already been shown to us. So we can, as believers, trust that the true ministry of the Holy Spirit will always be in accordance to the very nature of what we saw in Scripture of Jesus Christ. Okay? You guys with me so far? Okay. I know you guys were all prepared to come in and study the rest of Romans chapter 12, but I think this is important for us. So look with me at verse number 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Stop right there for a moment. Paul is going to go on in just a moment, and he's going to list some nine spiritual gifts in the following verses and more in other places. And there is indeed a, a diversity of gifts, and yet Paul is explicitly stating there is only one giver. There's only one giver of the gifts who works through the diverse gifts as, as we see them laid out. Now, the gifts are diverse, and the ministries are different, and the activities are diverse, is what Paul is saying to us. But it is the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, doing the works of the gifts, the ministries, and the activities. Now, here, the word ministries has in mind the different gifted offices in a church, like the specific titles. So like the title of overseer or bishop or shepherd used to talk about the pastor or the title of deacon or deaconess, which would be used to discuss the church board. And here we see uh, the, gifted, the gifted offices also of prophets, of evangelists, of teachers. And Paul describes these in other places. Uh, as probably I would point to Ephesians chapter 4 if you want to reference something else. And Paul's clear in his point here that there are different offices, but each one is empowered by the same Lord. The same exact Lord granting the office and also directing the service. Now, the word activities here, for those of you who are note takers, it comes from the Greek word energimata. And this word is where we get our English word energy. It's where we get our English word energetic and energized from. And it means in our English language, it means active or miraculous power, energimata. And activities is the same word that comes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that says the working of miracles. It's the same exact Greek word that Paul uses again. Now, these differences that we see here in the activities and the ministries and the gift means that God's display and he pours out his miraculous power in different ways, but it always comes from the same God doing the same work. 
But what are the differences that we see in Scripture? What are the differences between the gifts and the ministries and the activities and and the manifestations of the Spirit? So all of these things are gifts. Some gifts are ministries, meaning that they have standing office positions in the church. Some are activities, meaning that there are uh, miraculous events or outpourings uh, of a particular time and place. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to discuss in just a few minutes about what that means. But here's the 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 struggle for many in the church. It's easy for us to focus on our own little area of gifts or ministries or activities and believe that those who have other gifts or ministries or activities are not really walking and or working with God because we've become short-sighted in the abilities that God has given to us. And yet, The one God has a glorious diversity in the way that he does things in the church. And so we should never expect to be, for everything to be all according to our own emphasis or our own taste. Meaning that this this passage here is showing us that there's diversity, but it's also declaring to us the trinity. It's also declaring to us the trinity. In, In a typical yet subtle New Testament Type way. So look with me at verse number seven. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And all of these are empowered by one in the same spirit who apportion to each one individually as he wills. Now, the Holy Spirit is always present in and among Christians. We should never, ever forget that. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John 14 that he would abide with you forever. Meaning that the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit was given to you so that the the presence of God would dwell within you as the living temple uh, of the Lord. Now, at some times though, the Spirit's presence is more apparent than at other times. Okay, there are times when he may choose to manifest himself that his, that is his to make himself apparent. Okay, now we should never think that the Holy Spirit is more present when he is manifested though through the spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit is always present with believers, but at times he is more apparent through a manifestation of the Spirit itself. Now, the purpose of these manifestations uh, is to benefit the whole church family, not just a particular individual in that church family. Paul will begin to mention these manifestations, and I'm going to address this in, uh, in some of what we talk about in just a little bit. But he begins by mentioning a specific gifting, and that is uh, the word of wisdom. 
Now, this is a very unique ability, and it's to speak forth the wisdom of God, especially in a very important situation, as we saw in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, and as we saw again in Acts chapter 23 with Paul. Then he goes on to say, uh, the next is the word of knowledge. And that unique ability is to declare knowledge that could only be revealed supernaturally. Okay, and that, that we see in Matthew 17 and Acts 27 as well. Now, when Charles Spurgeon was saved, it was uh, at the preaching of a man who directed a portion of his sermon directly to Charles Spurgeon sitting in the service, and he directed it right at him. And the man, he said, spoke supernaturally right to where I found myself, and it was because of his obedience to speak those things that I came to know the Lord, the, the word of knowledge. Now, another example of, of a word of knowledge um, was, I was going to give you another example, and now my mind is blank, so we're just going to bypass it. Now, we have to understand, though, tonight, the difference between a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge, because those are two different things. Because one may have great knowledge, even supernatural knowledge, yet have no wisdom in the application of that knowledge. They may not, as well as we must always use discernment. I want you guys uh, who are note takers or who have a Bible and a pen, I want you to write the word discernment at the top of your Bible, um, discernment. We must always use discernment in receiving a word of knowledge, remembering that God is not the only source of supernatural knowledge. Did you guys catch that? God is not the only source of supernatural knowledge. I, I love the quote by A.W. Tozer that said that the devil is a better theologian than any of us and he is the devil still. Yes. The devil is a better theologian than any of us and he is the devil still. Okay? Even if a word is true, it does not mean that it is from God and that the one speaking the word is truly representing God. You guys catch that? Okay, Paul also talks about the gift of faith. And though faith is an essential part of every Christian's life, the gift of faith spoken about here is the ability to trust God against all circumstances. Okay, the best example of this that we see in Scripture is Matthew 14, when Peter stepped out of the boat and was able to walk on water. Okay, another, another mighty example of a gift of faith uh, was the Christian leader and philanthropist George Mueller. How many of you know that name? George Mueller. He was a 19th century uh, English uh, theologian who provided for thousands and thousands of orphans completely by prayer alone by prayer alone, uh, without ever asking his church or the other local churches for donations. This man prayed and money came in to provide for these orphans and no one ever asked for it. It was an act of or a gift of faith. Now, he also talks about the gift of healing. Now, this is another touchy uh, gift of the Spirit that is often... Um, manufactured uh, in what we see on TV and even on social media. And this is, the, this is the fact that God's healing power is either given or received by an individual. And it's been repeatedly documented, not only in the New Testament, but in current, uh, in current situations today. Now, what we must understand is that this power 
came at particular times when the apostles received from the Holy Spirit uh, this overwhelming power to cure a disease. Uh, But that power, we must remember, it was not always a resident within the apostles. Meaning that they didn't always have with them this weapon in their arsenal that they could just pull out and wield at any time. Uh, Paul, we know from scripture, was unable to pray and heal Timothy. We know that. Paul himself, you're talking about the man who wrote three quarters of the New Testament and was a convert after he became a persecutor and killer of Christians. And so you would think, man, this this man of God would be able to see a manifestation of the works of the Holy Spirit. Paul was not able to cure Timothy. Paul also was not able to heal himself. We know he prayed not once, not twice, but three times for uh, the thorn in his flesh to be removed, and it was not. And so there there are extraordinary occasions in which the Lord manifests to heal someone's physical body. And this is probably perhaps the most general uh, of, of the gifts that we see in the most prevalent of ways. Now, he also specifies something called a work of miracle. And, and that word uh, miracles there literally is the word uh, dunamis, which means act of power or where we get our English word dynamite. Okay, this describes when the Holy Spirit chooses to override the laws of nature working in or through somebody else. Okay, gifts of healing and works of miracles often operate in conjunction with the gift of faith. Okay, we saw this best in the book of Acts chapter 3. Now, these things, though, church, are not done on the whim of the individual as if the power to heal or the work of miracles was at their permanent disposal at any time that they wanted. We see this nowhere in Scripture. Instead, they are operating as individuals who are prompted by God, given their faith to perform such a work. And the best example and explanation that we see this in is Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Now he specifies the gift of prophecy. Now, this is another word or a gift of the Spirit that we often have a misunderstanding of. We oftentimes see prophecy as what we would say in our English language as foretelling, F-O-R-E, telling, meaning I am predicting the future to happen. Now, that does occur, and that word prophecy does have foretelling appropriated to it, but the word prophecy comes from the Greek word meaning forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, forth telling meaning that I am bringing about God's message in a particular sense that I have received from his truth meaning that I am speaking something from the word of God to somebody else or a group of people who do not know or understand that truth okay you guys tracking with me so far so prophecy though it can be used as foretelling the most general sense that we see in the Bible is forth telling truth to somebody else. Now, sometimes um, it is foretelling the future, and we see this also in the book of Acts chapter 21, as well as Acts chapter 27. But oftentimes, people who believe the miraculous gifts have been removed from the church 
try to define prophecy as preaching. They try to define prophecy as preaching. Though this is common, it's an inaccurate assessment of this specific gift. There is a Greek word used for preaching, and there is a Greek word used for prophecy. They don't even come from the same root word. They're two different words. And Paul used the word divinely inspired speech, not preaching. And although good Spirit-filled and Spirit-anointed preaching will often use the gift of prophecy. It is inaccurate to define prophecy as preaching. Next, he said the discerning of spirits. The discerning of spirits. This is the ability to tell the difference between truth and that which is false doctrine. Okay? And between what is of the Holy Spirit and what is not of the Holy Spirit. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan will come as an angel of light. We know in Genesis chapter 2 that he will deceive with a false and attempting message. We know from 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicle chapter 18 there can be lying spirits in the mouths of the prophets. Okay? We know in Matthew 16 that Satan can speak right after God speaks. Okay? We also know that some people who seem to say the right things are really of the devil. We know this from Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 16. It's also important, as John told us in 1 John chapter 4, that we must test the word of anyone who claims the phrase, I have received a word of the Lord, or I speak for God. Uh, We are to test those things according to scripture. Yeah, go ahead, Amy. Well, I'm sure. I'm going to explain, answer that question in just a little bit, uh, hopefully. And if not, then I'll. Yeah, that's good. Next, um, church, I, I want us to understand uh, a couple of things. Scripture is very clear to us that Satan can work deceiving miracles. We also know from scripture that the devil will infiltrate the church with false teachers. Those two things occur. I mean, they were prevalent in Paul's day in the New Testament. There's no way that we have somehow avoided the things uh, that Paul talked about then in our culture. When our culture is headed down the same path uh, that they were headed down in the first century church. And so we need the gift of discernment in the church. We need the gift of discernment. Now, Paul, yeah, go ahead. Uh, All believers should use discernment. um, And this specific gift, uh, when asked, can be uh, used more frequently in in the church circle within the believer's life. Yes. So this is is one gift uh, that I would say ties directly in. Uh, to what James said in James chapter 1 when he said, if any of you lack wisdom, uh, you are to ask of God. And this is exactly what he's talking about. Uh, Wisdom uh, would run very closely in line with the the word discernment or or seeing discernment in one's life. Yeah, go ahead. That's great. So I thought we talked about the Holy Spirit gives us these gifts as he sees fit. Yes. Sometimes when he wants us to or what? 
So let me ask this. If I don't ask for discernment and wisdom, will I ever receive it? So what do you think we should do on a pretty regular basis? Right, praying and asking for wisdom and sermon. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Did you did you guys hear what she said? Yeah. So Hebrew, she, she was reading Hebrews 5.14 that says, you know, solid. She's it's talking about the difference of, of, of being on milk versus meat or, or knowing the word of God. And so essentially it's a, it's a charge to the believer uh, to know the word of God so that you are able to discern what is true versus false, essentially, is what the writer of Hebrews uh, is stating. She just, it's a great point. Yes, just bringing it up. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. And not knowing, not knowing, knowing a little bit. Yes. So, in, in Jesus' 40 days in the desert when he was fasting to prepare for ministry, uh, this, the devil engaged Christ three different times. Um, and each one of those times, the three things that Satan said, what did Jesus say in return? Not, not word for word, but what did he do? How did he combat false doctrine? He, he shared scripture. He shared scripture. And so as a believer, in order for us to discern uh, not just the will of God, right? We read that at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. We're able to discern the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Uh, we're able to use that truth in our minds to combat the warfare that will begin to creep in when we hear something that sounds good, but may not be of the Lord. We're able to discern. Now, one of, my, one of my favorite groups of people in the New Testament are the Bereans. The Bereans are a group of people, uh, really a church group of people in the book of Acts uh, that were there. And in everything that they heard from people who said that they were from God, they tested with Scripture. They tested it with Scripture. And they were able to discern very quickly who was of God and who was not of God. And those, the Bereans uh, still, I mean, the, the, the colleges and the churches that came out of the Berean movement uh, from the early first century church really traveled on down. And those churches are people who are dedicated to understanding scripture so that they are able to combat the lies as they come. Were you going to say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the danger. Yeah. Right. Sure. 
Right. Agreed. Yeah, believe, right. So the Holy, the Holy Spirit will only ever speak of Christ. Uh, but remember from John 14 and John 16, the Holy Spirit will remind us of all truth and he will guide us in all truth. Okay, so the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to, I want to kind of add to what you said, right? So there's, there's a danger um, in, in that, right? There's two ditches. There's the one ditch that believes everything that everybody says uh, because they call themselves a pastor or a Christian author or fill in the blank, right? The danger on this ditch is that I just believe everything they said because they are labeled with a title, the other ditch over here is that I come to church and instead of engaging with what the Lord has for me, I'm on the prowl to find every single mistake that that person says. Those are the two ditches. Not saying that you shouldn't be listening intently, but when you're engaged in what someone's saying, especially if you know the word, uh, you will be able to recognize quickly when something sounds off. Now, um, that, that's one of the things that I want to ensure that our church knows as your pastor. I don't want you to believe every single thing that I say just because I stand on this platform and I've been given the platform to speak. Uh, I, I want you, and that's, that's why we have a Bible study like this, so that we can engage in conversation and topics that I wouldn't be able to do on a Sunday. Um, and so it gives us the ability to speak. It gives me the ability to answer those hard questions. But I also want you guys to be able to come back. I mean, there are people that, that are sitting here today that have sent me text messages or uh, like a Facebook message or an email like, hey, could you explain this further? You said this. Or hey, could you tell me where you got this information from? Or how did you come to this conclusion? And I, I willingly like, am asking of you to please do that. Because what does that do for you, right? One, it shows me that you're actually being a student of the word. But that's what it shows me. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you're telling me I want to learn and grow deeper in my relationship with the Lord, right? So someone once told me um, that um, my understanding of truth and my relationship with God is my worship ceiling, Meaning that if I know very little, I will worship very little of God in my relationship. And I'm not talking about just standing in my room singing. I'm talking about my devotion, uh, the way that I live my life, right? So the deeper that I go in my relationship with the Lord, the higher my worship ceiling is. The, the more time I want to spend with him, the more I want to know of his nature, the more I want to be in his presence, right? And so we have to, be, we have to become and be students of the word. Now, the next thing that Paul has to say, yeah, go ahead, Terry. Yep. Yes. 
there's always going to be uh, something that is off, right? It's, it's, or something that's, that's missing or something that's more than, um, right? So one of the biggest, one of the biggest um, issues, um, I'll just throw it out there, is the salvation issue, right? There are a lot of churches and a lot of denominations that will use the terminology Jesus plus. That's of Satan. That's of Satan. You're, you're getting people to believe a false gospel, something that is not real, something that will not change you, will not lead you to God himself. It's antichrist. Yep. Now, the gift of tongues is the next one, and we're not going to spend too much time at this very moment because I want us to jump in uh, to chapter 14 here in just a few minutes, um, and hopefully I will answer all of your questions when we get to 14 and we begin to break it down. Now, the gift of tongues spoken about here is a personal language of prayer that is given by God to an individual whereby the believer can communicate with God beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. We're going to see this in chapter 14 when we get to it. Now, this language, I want us to know, is an agreement between parties. It's an agreement between parties. It is where it is agreed that certain sounds represent certain objects or ideas. And so when using the gift of tongues, we are agreeing with God that as the Holy Spirit prays through us, though we may not understand, we are praying directly to God and God does understand. Now, tongues have a very important place in the devotional life of the believer, but a very small place in the corporate life of the church. I'm going to address this when we get to chapter 14, especially in public meetings, and I'm going to address that as well. Now, when tongues are practiced in the corporate life of the church, it is to be carefully controlled and never without an interpretation given by the Holy Spirit. I will also address that when we get to chapter 14. Now, the ability to pray in an unknown language is not a gift given to every believer. We're going to see that here in this chapter. But the ability to pray in a tongue is not the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit either. Okay? That emphasis has led people to seek the gift of tongues and to even counterfeit the gift of tongues merely to prove to themselves and to others that they are truly filled with the Spirit. Now, many people believe that the gift of tongues died when the apostles died, meaning that they died uh, at the end of the book of Revelation because it was finished. Now, Many of these define the gift of tongues as merely the ability to speak in other languages for the purpose of spreading the gospel in those languages. But that has not changed one bit since the day of the apostles. There are still people in other languages that have not received the gospel yet. And so the ability to be able to use the gift of tongues for the purpose of the gospel is still present, meaning that there's no way that it could have died. Also, Paul said that the gifts will not cease until everything has come to perfection. And the day of perfection has not come. Why? Because Christ has not returned. So instead, the Bible clearly says that the gift of tongues is meant for an individual's communication with God, not man. We're also going to address that in chapter 14. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what about the day of Pentecost? What happened at the day of Pentecost? Well, there's often a misinterpretation of Scripture in Acts chapter 2. At the day of Pentecost... And when the disciples spoke in tongues, they were not preaching to the crowd. 
in crazy languages. Okay, Peter spoke in the Greek language, which was common to the majority of people there. But rather the group, the 120 disciples or followers of God that had prayed in the upper room at the end of chapter 1 were speaking and they said in Acts 2.11, in our own tongues, meaning that they all came from different places and spoke different languages and they were speaking about the wonderful works of God is what they spoke. Now, the crowd at the day of Pentecost heard the disciples excitedly praising God, often Those who speak in tongues today are mocked by those who deny the gift of tongues with the accusation that they are speaking gibberish. That's exactly uh, what I, I mean, I don't know if anybody else has heard anything else, but that's the most common thing that we hear in the Christian circles is it's just gibberish. Now, Acts chapter 2 is wrongly used to support that view that it's just gibberish. Because Acts 2 tells us that those who spoke in tongues of the day of Pentecost were speaking intelligible languages that were understood by other people. But it does not tell us that all 120 spoke in tongues that were in languages that could be understood. So they were reading in, they were causing an inference in scripture or or our own opinion, they were adding it, which if we know from the last couple of weeks is called eisegesis, when we throw our own opinions into scripture, okay? Now we should not assume that those who were not immediately understood spoke gibberish as tongues are often referred to as derision. Now, they, they they may have praised God in a language completely unknown yet to humans, at that specific time. What would the language of the Aztecs sound to those who spoke Greek or those who spoke Hebrew or in a completely unique language that was given by God and understood by God alone? After all, communication with God is with God and not man and it is, that is the purpose of tongues. Now, the, repu- or the repetition of very simple phrases here in Scripture unintelligible and perhaps nonsensical to human bystanders does not mean such speech is gibberish. It does not. Praise to God may be simple and repetitive. And part of the whole dynamic of tongues is to bypass the understanding, uh, but being understood by God and God alone. Okay? Now, along with the gift of tongues, he also says the gift of interpretation. Now, this gift allows the gift of tongues to be a benefit for those other than the speaker. And as they were able to hear and agree with the tongue speaker's words, they were able to share with the church body. Now, in these verses, we tend to focus on the list of gifts, but Paul does not focus on the lists. He does not give detailed descriptions of each and every gift that's laid out, and it's probable that the church was familiar with all of the gifts, and that's why he felt no need to break every single gift down. But what Paul emphasized is that each of these gifts is by or through the same Spirit. That's what he emphasized. Repeating that same idea nearly five times here in just a few verses, and he concludes with the statement, but one and the same Spirit works all of these things. And so the tendency here for division amongst the Christians made them think separately and competitively about their gifts. My gifting is better than your gifting and it's better than their gifting. And that causes division in churches. And so the tongue speakers 
would have thought of themselves superior to those who prophesied and those who had gifts of healing and those who had words of knowledge. And so there was division in the church. And so Paul comes back and says, all of these gifts come from the same spirit. They all do. And, and this is the part, right, that gets most people. He distributes to each individually as he wills. As he wills. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, and this is another reason for unity. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Right. And that's are you reading chapter thirteen? Yeah. So the what? So Paul is addressing the church, talking about unity in the church. When he gets to thirteen, he's talking about how we're able to be united through Christ by by displaying right. So what were the two greatest commandments that Jesus said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So unity is, is really what Paul is talking about and, and really a reason against any sense of superiority in the giftings. And so they're distributed not according to the will of man, but as the spirit of God wills, as he wills. You know, often we assume spiritual gifts are given because a person is spiritually mature or closer to God, but that may not be the case at all. In fact, we should never assume that giftedness is connected to maturity. Uh, never, ever, uh, because God can and God does for his own glory and his own purpose distribute spiritual gifts to those who are especially, uh, who are not especially spiritually mature or even close to him at times. And this is why spiritual giftedness um, should never be a criteria for a position of leadership in the church uh, amongst Christians, but Christian maturity and Christian character, as we see in 1 Timothy. And so God can grant um, any remarkable spiritual gift in a moment, but character and maturity take time to build in an individual. Now, if the Spirit distributes to each one individually as He wills, why would he choose to give a particular gift at a particular moment? To glorify God. The larger reason may not be apparent as we look at the scripture, but the goal of the Holy Spirit's work is always to glorify Jesus Christ and to build his nature and character in the Christian. Always. And so the Spirit's goal is to never amaze or confuse man, but to build the fruit of the Spirit, and he will use or not use any gift that he thinks right to help get to that end. And so he distributes as he wills, and though the manifestations of the Spirit are given as the Holy Spirit wills, the believer must still receive them with faith. 
They must still receive them with faith. He distributes and we receive. And the receiving and the exercising of the gifts is often very natural when we receive them uh, in faith. Now, are some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit no longer given to the church today? So I'm hopefully going to address this very simply. Because this is an issue that has greatly divided the body of Christ. Both theologically and spiritually. Uh, on both sides. There are some people who think those who believe all of the gifts are used today, typically those in the charismatic or the Pentecostal movement, uh, they think that those people are deceived by Satan, as is typically what some more conservative denominations will speak. But then there are those who believe that some of the gifts are no longer given, and they believe that those people are unspiritual and dead in their walks with God because they don't see them. Now, where does our church stand? Where, not just the Wesleyan denomination, but where does our church stand? Well, I align like spot on with where the Wesleyan church is. The Wesleyan church often is respected because it has biblical balance. That's one of the things I love about the Wesleyan church is it has biblical balance when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their place in the church. Okay, the Wesleyans are sometimes rightly seen as too Pentecostal for the Baptists, and they're seen too Baptist for the Pentecostal. Um, in my childhood, uh, and even in college, when we were studying about John Wesley, I heard the term oftentimes Pentabaptist about the Wesleyan Church, or Bapticostals uh, were the two terms that they often used in regards to the Wesleyan Church. Well, what, what were they talking about? Well, they were talking about that the Wesleyan Church believes that the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit himself. But that the Holy Spirit can still use those gifts in the church circle today as long as it aligns with Scripture. And that's exactly where I stand personally and where we, where we will go as a, as a church because it aligns with Scripture. And that's why I love the Wesleyan church uh, so much. Now, balance though, and church, don't miss this, balance is meaningless unless it's biblical balance. We, we can't try to find the balance between truth and heresy. We have to find the balance between truth and application. The truth and the application. It can't be truth and heresy. It's got to be balanced between truth and application. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So now jump with me to chapter number 14, because now I'm going to show us what scripture says about the guiding principles of using the gifts of the spirit. 
Yeah, go ahead. And then we got to get rolling because we only have about 35 minutes and I need to cover about 40 pages worth of notes. Nope. We're going to chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. That he was the Messiah. Yeah. It does not have to. And that's what I'm going to talk about here. It does And not, so, to authenticate the truth that we have from Scripture, it does not have to appear the way that it did in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that it can't appear that way. Okay. So, look with me at verse number one of chapter 14. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So stop right there at the end of verse 1. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brilliantly declared the preeminence of love for Christians right here. After he just spoke what we would call the love chapter of the Bible in chapter 13, the chapter before this. And since love is the greatest, we must pursue love. Now, there was nothing wrong with the Christian's desire for spiritual gifts. That's not what he's saying. But they made a godly desire into an obsessive pursuit. And so now he's, he's addressing uh, the carnality, the, the humanness or the depravity of man in the attempt to obtain spiritual gifts when the main pursuit for the Christian should be a love for God and a love for people. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul spoke of prophecy and the gift of tongues only in the context of all of the other spiritual gifts. But now he's going to focus on these two gifts because they're abused the most in church. And he's going to tell us how they should function in the church's life. So look at verse number 2. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building up in encouragement and consolation. Stop right there. With the gift of tongues, the speaker is addressing God, not man. Addressing God, not man. Now, uh, disregard of that principle alone will lead one of the most significant misunderstandings in regards to the gift of tongues. Believing that tongues is a supernatural communication from man to man instead of man to God is an obliteration of what Paul is sharing here about this specific spiritual gift. And if we misunderstand that fact right there, then we completely misunderstand Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. And we think the disciples preach to the crowd in tongues on the day of Pentecost, when that is not what Scripture teaches. Instead, they spoke to God with the multinational crowd overhearing the praises of God in their own languages, in their own understood languages. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 11 says that we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God, meaning that they understood the things that they were saying. Later in Acts chapter 10, we see the, the gift of the tongues in this way. 
And, and Luke records that they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So, you have a question or are you just resting your arms? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'll, I'm going to address the, the, where interpretation fits in with the speaking of tongues in just a moment. So hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll clear it up, but if it doesn't, then tell me. If we misunderstand these first four verses or first three verses here in this chapter, then we misunderstand what really happens when someone attempts to interpret a tongue and address his or her message to men. Uh, two interpretation here of the gift of tongues will address will be addressed to God, not to men. It will be a prayer. It will be a praise. It will be some other communication that's directed to God. If we misunderstand that, we can be led to believe the gift of tongues is just the ability to speak in some other language. And all Paul means here is interpreting the preacher's sermon in someone else's native tongue. That'll be a misunderstanding that we have. But no one needs to interpret the preacher's sermon for God's sake. If we misunderstand it, then we misuse the gift of tongues, using it in a way that will draw unnecessary attention to ourselves. Now, God does not give anyone the gift of tongues for the direct sake of others, though indirectly people are edified, but for that, for that believer and for God is the direct purpose. Now, when Paul recognized that normally when someone spoke in tongues, no one else could understand him. Now, the simple reason is this. With the gift of tongues, the intention is to be communicating with God in a way he and he alone would understand. Now, Paul said it is fine if no one understands him because God understands him. It is fine. The exception to no one understand, understanding him is when the tongue is publicly interpreted. Now, we're going to get to that in just a moment, okay? Even then, it is not the tongue itself that is understood, but the interpretation of the tongue. Now, Paul spoke and he said that it will be done in the, the Spirit will speak mysteries, will speak mysteries. When the tongue speaker cannot be understood, it does not mean that it isn't a real language, okay, or that they're merely speaking gibberish. It means that they speak in the spirit and that they're speaking mysteries that only God understands and or knows. Now, this does not mean that all intelligible speech is that of a legitimate gift of tongues because this can be manufactured. Some not understanding the gift may imitate it, they may fake it, or they may just attempt to prove something. Now, in contrast to the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy was for men. Did someone have a question over here? No? Okay. The gift of prophecy is God speaking supernaturally, often naturally, supernaturally, through people and to people. Now, not only is the gift of prophecy directed towards men, but it is also largely positive in its message. Now, when, when a negative word is spoken, it is not truly a word from God at all, or it is a word meant only for the individual, not for somebody else. Now, 
We know here, Paul said, that prophecy is used for upbuilding, which is exhortation. It's used for encouragement, and it's used for consolation. Now, in upbuilding or exhortation, it's a construction word, meaning something that is built on top of a strong foundation. It's built upon something else. A word of prophecy is supposed to build people up, not tear them down. Amen? Next is encouragement. It is like the speech from a coach in the locker room before the really big game. And he's trying to rally the team to go out and perform as they were trained to perform. A word of prophecy encourages somebody. It does not discourage. It does not discourage. And then consolation, right? Consolation not only has the idea of consoling someone, but also strengthening somebody in their weakness, right? It's not just that you go and you cry with someone who's crying. It's that you put your arm around them and, and, and you're strengthening them to say, I'm here to help carry that burden as well. Consolation. Now, a word of... Day. I'm sorry? To day. Yes. The word of prophecy strengthens, exhorts, encourages. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with that. Yes. So if, if, sure, I understand what you're asking. I would, I would say that um, it's, a very, it's a very dangerous line to say the Lord, the Lord said to me. It's a very, I, first of all, I would, I would caution uh, all of us about being very careful to use the phrase, and I'll tell you why. Uh, in, in the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement, uh, there is something that they teach in those churches that tell you to practice on people by using the phrase, the Lord told me, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. Um, and so it, it comes, uh, with a, um, a very dark and very grim, uh, perspective from many church denominations, especially those in the Christian circle that are heavily trained in the word of God. That's the first thing. The second thing is if the Lord gives us the gift of prophecy, we're not being a mediator. We're heralding what the Lord gave to us. Does that make sense? Go ahead and then go ahead. Go ahead, Kim. That's good. Yep. 
Yes. Did you guys hear what she said? She said in, in the exhortation, is there an element of correction where it may not feel good, uh, but it turns the focus back on God? And I will say yes. So that word exhortation is used in one of my favorite portions of scripture in Hebrews where he says, exhort each other as long as it's called today. Meaning that we are to exhort one another, uh, which does build people up. Why? Uh, and, and I'm going to address uh that the whole portion of the feelings part it builds people up because it's bringing them back to truth that truth is supposed to be uh, what sanctifies the believer and uh, what do I say all the time about our feelings our feelings may not be based on truth right and so in those moments we have to ask ourselves the question what is true what is true because our feelings, may, our feelings may be based on any number of things. It could be based on our life circumstances. It could be based on a past history. It could be based on, or based on the, you know, how my day was at work, or is my spouse and I fighting, or are my kids being you know, rebellious, or, right? And so we have to always go back. So yes, thank you for pointing that out. Go ahead. Sure. Sure. I really feel like those are real things that can happen in people. And I, I would like to also encourage us to be aware that, yeah, there's other people out there that are always going to want to say, yeah, this is the best and that's the best. But once something changes, there are people out there that really do need to hear from God. Um, sure. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't meaning. We have to use caution when we use that terminology because. Um, we can't, and I, and I think this goes back to what Kurt, Curtis was saying, we, we are not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so um, I'm not a part of the Trinity, and neither are any of we uh, in, in this room. We're not a part of the Trinity. And so, yes, God can use us, um, but we have to use great caution uh, because a lot of times we'll use those phrases as though, um, look at me, God told me and not you kind of way. 
Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Struggle with that word, bad. Sure. Right, and that's the danger of manufactured usages of uh, the gifts of the Spirit. So look now with me at verse number 4. Now, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, some have wrongly thought that Paul is saying this as uh, criticism here, but their idea is that Paul meant something like, you selfish church, you use tongues only to edify yourself when you should use it to edify others. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Uh, Paul is simply stating the nature of the gift of tongues. Since he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, it follows that the gift is primarily for self-edification, not for church edification. That doesn't mean it can't happen, but he's saying the primary source of speaking in tongues should be for self-edification. He says those who prophesy edify the church because prophecy can be understood by all, and a true word of prophecy builds everyone up. Now, Paul does say, though, I wish you all spoke with tongues. So he's very positive about speaking in tongues, and because of the tone of this chapter, it's easy to think he was down or, or speaking badly about the gift of tongues, but that's not at all. He said he valued the gift of tongues in his own life. In verse 18, if we're able to get there, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Not that he was trying to be prideful in that, but he's saying, I want other Christians to be able to speak in tongues. And Paul was able, when in the Spirit, to speak mysteries and unburden his soul before God in a way that no human language or intellect could explain. So he could pray, and he could praise, and he could intercede beyond his human ability to understand and to articulate with God. Paul wanted every Christian to be able to experience that blessing as good, but as good as the gift of tongues is, Paul sees prophecy as better for the church as a whole. And why? Why? Well, because he who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church edifies the church. And the focus here is that the church may receive edification more than the actual individual does. And so Paul's context here in chapter 14 is more focused on what the Christians do when they come together as a church more than what they do in their own individual life.
And so these things that are, are, are fine for a Christian to do in their own devotional life, which honestly, if we think about it, may be disruptive or even self-exalting for a Christian to do in a worship service. And the gift of tongues is one of those things. And Paul is, is, is saying, focus, focus, Christian, when you come together as a church, and if something does come from the Holy Spirit, let it be prophecy. Let it be prophecy because it edifies the whole body. And how, however, though, if one were to ask Paul, which is greater for your personal devotional life, I can almost guarantee he would say the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues. Because it edifies man as he's speaking directly to God. And he would in no way, though, say, um, he would in no way say, you must do this or that, or it must look this way in your own personal prayer closet. But in ministry, in the church body, um, he said, speak so that all will profit. Look at verse number six. He says, uh, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now Paul recognizes that the gift of tongues was valuable for himself, but it was not valuable for him to speak to others with the gift, meaning they could not understand him, so they could not be edified in that. And he begins to describe, unless I speak to you either in revelation or knowledge or prophesying. And so he's just describing different ways in which he might communicate things that would edify people. Yes. Yes, and I'm going to get to that in just a moment. So he says revelation, meaning that there are times when Paul knew that when he was speaking, there was apostolic authority in the words that he was directing to the people. He also knew that there were times of knowledge, meaning that he's speaking of his own knowledge from his own personal experience, but also by supernatural knowledge so that people would understand. Prophesying, he knew that he could speak by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to bring about something that would edify the people in which he was leading, and then by teaching. He was bringing about something that would profit others by speaking to them from the scripture themselves. So look now at verse number seven. He says... Uh, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? And so he's saying that musical instruments must use a certain pitch and a beat to communicate in a song. And if they do not, the music is not accessible to the listener. He's giving us an example of what would happen if tongues came and there was no interpretation. And no one would know. It would come forth as sound, but no one could understand it. And the same is the same is true, right? Nobody would know that they would be ready for battle. And so it's no profit to anyone to speak tongues with no interpretation. It's like, for you will be speaking into the air, is the way that Paul would describe it. And so speaking in tongues at at a church meeting, benefits no one else, is simply putting sound into the air, no words and ideas into the minds of the hearts of others. And so it may satisfy curiosity in somebody to hear somebody else speak in tongues, but it does not edify spiritually, right? We may think it's neat to hear somebody's prayer language and them speaking in tongues, but that is more of a soulish curiosity than it is spiritual edification. So look at verse number 10. 
Um, he says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And so we can communicate with language because we're made in the image of God. That's why we're able to communicate in languages. Do you know modern linguists all around the globe know that man could not have invented language any more than we could have invented the circulatory system in our bodies? A language is so complex because language exists as a whole system, not as a small part put together. And so most linguists believe that all languages came from one original language. Well, where does that align? Genesis, the book of Genesis before the Tower of Babel. It aligned there. And knowing that language is a gift of God and all languages have meaning, then we can trust that if we speak in the gift of tongues, God understands even if nobody else does, including ourselves. Yeah, go ahead. So he addresses this at the end of the chapter and how we are, that, that we are to come to church to be a blessing, not to receive a blessing. And I'm, I'm going to hopefully address, because he's starting to talk about it now. He's trying to shift the focus of the people away from self-edification to the edification of the people around us. Yes. Yeah, so he says, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So he's saying, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. Why? Because prophecy edifies the entire body. That's what he's, he's trying to get us to see. We're striving for these unique manifestations of the working of God when really you, you should be coming to, right? What, what was the main purpose of prophecy? Forthtelling. I'm speaking truth, right? So my, my main focus should be on sharing truth with the people in, in my circle, right? Which would be our church body here and what happens through the process of that, but the building of unification and edification because we all glorify God through, through prophecy. Does that make sense? Yep. Love you, Tim. So, in verse number 12, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of, of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks uh, well enough, but the other person is not being built up. 
I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now let's stop right there. Because the goal, right, so when he hits verse 13 all the way down through verse 19, he starts out by saying, therefore. Do you remember what I have told us numerous times? Whenever we see the word therefore in scripture, we have to ask, why is the therefore, what, what's the therefore therefore, right? And so Paul is now going to answer everything that he said to us in the first 12 verses or 14 verses. And so he says that all of these things must, the goal must be mutual benefit at the church meeting. If there must be tongues, then there must be interpretation because there must be edification in the body. If tongues are directed to God, then how can a legitimate interpretation be edifying to other people? The same way when we read our Psalms and they are edifying to the body, that the prayer, the praise, and the plea of another unto God can identify powerfully with the own heart with inside of us, and we can agree with somebody else as they're speaking. And he says, but let him therefore who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, hopefully this will come back and answer the question that you are having. So, Paul points to a way of giving the interpretation of the tongue without necessarily speaking forth the tongue itself. Did you guys catch that? Paul is telling us right now that the, the, the speaking of the actual tongue language does not have to occur, but the interpretation can. That's why he's saying, if you must speak in tongues, pray for an interpretation. Pray. So, now I just want to... Um, She's not, I know Danielle is not here and she had brought out a couple of different things last week about, you know, if I had a word and, and I would speak it in church. Now, this is why I stood so firmly where I did to say that type of behavior is not of God, not directing it at, at Danielle in any way. I wasn't saying that Danielle is some like work of Satan. That's not what I was saying. So please get that out of your heads. But this right here is exactly what I was trying to explain to us last week as a group. This right here, Paul explicitly states, if tongues are to be spoken, an interpretation must occur or it is not of God. An interpretation. Now, here Paul is saying that interpretation doesn't have to come from somebody else. It can, but the person who receives the word is supposed to individually pray for the interpretation so they can give the interpretation in our native tongue and then be edified because of it. You guys tracking with me so far? Okay, perfect. Now, Paul is pointing here and suggesting that the tongue speaker himself should pray that he may interpret. Now, the uncertain sound of 1 Corinthians 14.8 needs never be public, yet the church is edified by the interpretation of the tongue itself. So speaking in tongues communicates with God on a spiritual level and it passes by our understanding. Now, my understanding does not benefit when I speak in tongues. Paul says it's unfruitful, but my spirit, he says, prays. Yeah, go ahead. What? Yeah. So, Paul, Paul is emphasizing the, the function uh, of the, the gift of tongues to communicate to God and not to man. Now, I'm, 
I'm at the end, right? He's telling us how, how the gift of tongues should operate in the church. And when we get to the end of the chapter, he says how it should be laid out. What is, what is the orderly conduct in which it should be? Because uh, he's going to talk about the church leaders judging whether or not what was spoken to be that which was an edification of the church. Now, in saying that my spirit prays, Paul is emphasizing the essential function of the gift of tongues. And that's to communicate with God, not to man. Now, for some, for some, the bypassing of the understanding is undesirable. It just is. They don't want to relate to God except by and through their own personal understanding. But when we value intellect... And when we value understanding and dedicate ourselves to loving God with all of our mind, we will appreciate the limitations that we have as humans in our understanding. And we can better thank God for a way to relate to him that goes beyond our intellect. Uh, We have to be able to move beyond that because if someone is perfectly satisfied with the ability to relate to God through their own human understanding, then they don't even have a need for gifts of tongues anyways. If I can, if I can, and I'm perfectly fine relating to God in my own humanness, then I don't even need to, to seek out the gifts because the gifts were to be the thing that brought us closer to God himself in our relationship. I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah, go ahead. Romans 8, yeah. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Now, Paul said if, if our understanding is unfruitful, then how does one actually speak in tongues? How does it occur, right? So we, we know from Scripture a couple of things. Because everybody's experience, their personal, in their, in their prayer closet experience might be slightly different, Uh, than somebody else's. Uh, But generally speaking, from Scripture, we can make a couple of observations. We can make the observation that it does not just happen as one person opens their mouth and then God somehow possesses your tongue and then it just happens. Uh, that That is a manufactured manifestation of man's will, not God's. We also know that it does not happen just because you wiggle your tongue. Okay, that's not how it works, okay? It also does not happen because you're told by some spiritual leader to just repeat these strange phrases over and over and over, and then God will supernaturally just start controlling your tongue. That's not how uh, it occurs. Uh, The language of tongues works much like the languages that we understand or know about here in our culture. A word or a sound will occur in our mind and we will vocalize that word or sound. In the gift of tongues, one simply continues to speak the words and sounds that come into their mind, trusting God is prompting them and that he understands what they're saying and that in the spirit, what we say is perfectly appropriate for that moment in my relationship with God. Now, that poses this really big question. Is it possible that one could speak in tongues and without knowing say the most horrible blasphemies? Is it possible? Thank you. No, it is not possible. It is not. 
Paul began this entire section on spiritual gifts with the principle, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. It's exactly what he said in, the, in chapter 12. And so we should not fear, right? If the Holy Spirit is impressing upon us uh, and giving us the gift of tongues for our, our, our own personal edification, right? We should not fear that we will find Satan when we sincerely seek for God. Amen? We should not fear that we will find Satan when we sincerely seek God. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he's he's Yeah, so Paul Paul speaks more to the gift of tongues being used in personal devotional uh, life than he does in the life of the church. Not saying that it does not happen. And we only have a few minutes, so I, I want to try and get through the rest of this if we can. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yep. Yes. Yes. Exactly like that. And so if no one can understand, then God is not, God is not glorified when his people are not edified. Because what happens in the edification process? We praise and thank God, right? So when we are, when we are edified in our body, what does it drive us to do but to focus back on God. So if, if God is not glorified through my edification, then was I truly edified? And if I wasn't truly edified, then was the gift appropriated by God himself? The answer would be no. Yeah. Now, um, we, must, we must also remember um, another general principle in speaking to the gifts of the Spirit and relating specifically uh, to these gifts um, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that the spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophet, meaning that the Holy Spirit does not make us do strange and bizarre things, that he will never make someone shout out in tongues in a public setting or speak in tongues in some strange manner, though they may do it in their own personal private cl prayer closet, but they should never ever credit or blame the Holy Spirit for what they as a human have added to the gift that was given to them. Now look quickly with me at verse number 15. He says, uh, no, wait, I already, read, I already read through 19. So let's just keep going. Paul will use the gift of tongues both in prayer and in song, and he will use them often. Yet in the church, he says, I would rather speak five words with my own understanding than 10,000 words in tongues. And so Paul's use of tongues was focused in the devotional life with the Lord, and he's making a reference here to how in our personal devotion life, we can sing in the Spirit, meaning that we can we can sing uh, in tongues and he's giving us, God is giving us the freedom in our relationship with him to exercise that gift uh, in a melodic way so as to flow with our, our vocal worship of him uh, when we are alone. But based on the principles in this chapter, if this is done, it should never be done in a way that would draw attention to ourselves or distract other people away from what God is doing. He says, otherwise, 
If you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? And so if no one, and Kelly, this is going to kind of go back to what you were just asking. If nobody understands my blessing of the Lord, if no one understands my thanks to God, then we can't agree with you in that glorification. We can't say amen with you. And when I'm gathered together with other believers, I can't just do my own thing and say, well, this blesses me. We can't do that. Paul is saying, I must have a concern for other people in the church. And so Paul is completely consistent in his emphasis on everything being directed to God. But in this passage, he's saying we do have the gift of tongues to pray, to sing, to bless, to give thanks. We have them. And these things we do unto the Lord, not unto man. And so the gift is to God himself. Now, if this or in this, we see that Paul saw great value, though, in the gift of tongues in our personal devotional life before the, the Lord. And yet, when he gathered with other Christians, he was concerned that he wanted to be a blessing, not get a blessing. That's what he was focused on. So look with me now at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to the people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy in an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Stop right there. In, in the church's oftentimes selfish desire to edify themselves at the expense of others in a church meeting, the church showed themselves to be children and selfishly immature because they were abusing the spiritual gifts. And so Paul is pointing Christians to a higher calling. He's saying in the law it is written. Now why did he say that? Well, he's reminding them of the Old Testament. He's recalling now uh, perhaps a quote from Isaiah chapter 28 when the prophet announced judgment unto the people of Israel. And it says in chapter 28 of Isaiah that they didn't receive the words who spoke to them in Hebrew. So Isaiah was speaking in their own native tongue and they did not understand it. And so it says that they will now hear the voices of men in other tongues upon their lips. Israel was about to be overthrown, and they were about to be overthrown by Assyria, who spoke a completely different language, and the Israelites would not be able to understand them in battle. And it was an example of judgment that was coming upon them because they had rejected uh, the truth. And yet, for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. And so Paul is trying to say that today, tongues is still a sign in the church. In Isaiah 28, the strange tongues were not a blessing. It was a curse. Because they could not understand, it was a curse. And so Paul is warning the church today. He says, take heed that it not be the case now like it was back in the Old Testament. That by dwelling on the gift, you have forgotten who the giver was and what was designed for you as a blessing will now be a curse unto you. A curse. 
God will curse your blessing, is what he's saying. God will curse your blessing because I didn't follow truth. Not, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, he says. So if the unbelievers hear tongues in a church setting, they will not be blessed, but they will say that those who are followers of Christ are out of their mind. And if believers hear prophecy, Paul says, they will be convicted in their hearts and their reaction will be to worship God and report that God is truly among them. Why? Because prophecy edifies everybody. It edifies everybody. So the, the sign of the gift of tongues is a sign, but not a positive one to the unbeliever. There are signs of judgment as, as the unknown tongue was to, to the people of Israel. And in that way, tongues are uh, indeed a sign to unbelievers, but it is a sign that condemns them uh, as they regard tongue speakers as being out of their minds. And so how does this apply? Um, real quick, how does this apply to public worship? So look at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speaks in a tongue, let there be one, only, only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let him keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Which is, it brings back another thing that he's saying. Don't, don't, and don't speak tongues unless there's an interpretation. He says it again. Keep silent in the church. Right? Then he turns and he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what he is saying. So this goes back to what I was saying to Tim earlier. Let them weigh what he is saying. Um, and if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches and of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in a church. Now we're going to stop right there. We're going to stop right there and I'm going to hopefully do justice to this, okay? Paul says that the gathering of the church as a time when people are to come together and participate and to give to one another, not merely to passively receive. Now, we can easily picture how this dynamic would work in the church in this day because they were house churches. They were small churches with small groups of people. And so out of necessity, they would meet in homes and they'd be scattered all over the city. As they would meet these small groups of people, there was freedom and responsibility not only to receive but to give. And so one would bring a psalm or a teaching or a tongue and an interpretation or a revelation. And in a small home-type fellowship like that, that's how the church should work together. Now, when more people are gathered together, like in this type of setting or in our church setting on Sundays, everybody sharing is not something that we could do. It'd be very difficult. Why? Because among 10 people, it would be somewhat difficult. But when you get 50 or 70 or 100 people, uh, it's difficult to have every single person share. We'd, we'd be here for hours. And some people in here itch when I get 42 minutes into my sermon and I'm not done yet. Um, and so... Could you imagine every single person on a Sunday sharing something? We'd be here forever. And the larger group, 
oftentimes we get the mentality of I want to feel important by talking dynamic and it begins to present itself because we're humans and it can be there among 10 but how much more is it among 50 or 100 and so we're blessed and we find great spiritual growth through small groups and it provides a perfect context for this very thing in which Paul is talking about and at the same time there are potential pitfalls uh, in this approach, in, in the house church approach. It's easy for people of poor doctrine or weak character to dominate the group. And it's easy for the group to focus not on the truth of God, but on how I feel about what I just read in scripture. You know, Charles Spurgeon used to share a story about a man who came from a house church and he said, how was your meeting? And the guy said, oh, it was wonderful. No one knew anything and we all taught each other. That's a scary thought. But it was a true story in, in, in which uh, he used often. Now, it is safe to say that when it comes to house churches or larger churches, the issue is not that there's a right or a wrong way, one way or the other. God has and, and is continuing to use both uh, for, for the furtherance of his kingdom. And there are, are great needs uh, for healthy churches uh, to, to build up strong bodies of Christ today. Uh, but... Um, I will, I will say um, I'm, we should have the mentality that I'm coming to church not only to receive but to be a blessing. Not only to receive but to be a blessing. I'm coming to give a blessing to someone and I will ask God for an opportunity to bless someone um, on Sunday. And that way of thinking can take the 15 minutes before a church meeting or 30 minutes after a worship service and it can be the best and the most exciting time of ministry. I've seen it over and over and over again in the church setting. But it's a big mistake for people to come and think if I'm not up on the platform that I can't minister to somebody today. That's an awful, awful mentality. But instead, we should be on the lookout for opportunities to serve and to pray and encourage people and to help people and to meet people and to love on people when they walk through the doors of our church. The goal of, of coming as a church is not to be entertained or even be pleased or even obtain a blessing. We gather for edification of ourselves, glorification of God. And when we build when we're built upon that, these these crazy topics that cause division and, and cause churches to split um, will be menial um, in our eyes because we've come uh, to worship God. We we've, we're approaching church differently. That's why do you think that I struggle using the term church? I call it worship all the time because that's what we're here to do. We're here to worship God. Uh, we're, we're not here uh, because of a building. We're not here because of the AC. At least I hope you guys aren't coming here because of the AC. Right? Well, we're, we're, here, we're here to gather uh, to worship God. And, and so he says, let all things be done for the edification of the believer and the glorification of God. It means let everyone come to church with a heart to build somebody else up, to build somebody else up. And so then he gave us final instructions as he closed out, begins to close out. And Paul does not prohibit speaking in tongues. I wanted to make sure that we understood that. He does not prohibit it, but because if the tongue has an interpretation, then there is potential for edification of believers. Yet he doesn't encourage it either. 
And so the tongues in the church meeting are to be carefully regulated. He said two or three at most. And if you, if you must speak in tongues your church, at your church meeting, do not do much of it, is what he's saying. Do not do much of it. Don't focus on the tongues. He said each in his turn, which really just solidifies in our mind that the churches where congregations all come together and everybody speaking at tongues or in tongues at the all, all at the same time with no interpretations is not of God. It's not. More than one person should not ever speak in tongues at the same time and ever in any setting is what Paul is saying. And he said, and let there be an interpretation. And so don't speak in tongues at all, even if two or three people, even if two or three, if, the, if you will not have an interpretation, don't even do it. So speaking in tongues in a church meeting that does not observe these scriptural guidelines is wrong. It's not of God. And it, it might be well motivated and it might be done with a good heart, but it is still wrong because it goes against the teachings of scripture. It goes against the teaching. So then how do some churches justify their practice of all speaking in tongues at the same time rather uh, loudly and demonstratively? How do they do it? Well, they make a false distinction between speaking in tongues and using a prayer language. They, they make a, a false distinction, really. They would say that Paul regulates speaking in tongues but not a prayer language. And that false distinction and excuse is an excuse really for not obeying what Paul says here. And so he's making it very plain that people who use the gift of tongues are still under the control of the human individual. They, they can still decide, am I going to, to bring this forth or not? And Paul is saying, you're not compelled by the Holy Spirit to speak out. You're not compelled to do that. If there's no interpreter present or you don't have the interpretation, then the tongue speaker is fully able to keep silent in church. Fully able. And so we must, we must be reminded that, um, that there are guidelines to this. And, and it's, not, um, it's not an issue of whether a person can speak in tongues during a church meeting. It's an issue of whether they can speak publicly. It's whether they can speak publicly. Now, um, I, I want to jump to this part because you guys are all itching. I can see it about the whole thing about women keeping silent in the church. So um, I just want to jump to that piece. Um, I want to jump to that piece. Um, and before I get there, John told us in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This comes back to your question. Right? So Paul wrote in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. So Paul is saying even if an angel says that they have come from heaven and they bring a message that is contrary to that which we find in scripture, it says they must be judged. So what is the standard, right? What is the standard? How do we judge what comes? How do we test it? Well, first, it should be judged according to what God has established already in his revealed word. Meaning that if it, if, if it contradicts something in Scripture, it's never of God because God doesn't contradict himself. That's the first thing. If there is another standard to judge prophecy by, it's by the standard of agreement. Okay? So first, or 2 Corinthians 13 says, Six times by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. 
by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So God will confirm his word to the heart of the leadership of that church that's present in that very meeting. So prophecy may be judged as not from God, not because it contradicts scripture, but because the leadership judged that it was not what the Lord wanted to, the, to, to be given to the church at that specific time. And so that we have to, when he says to test it, we test it based upon what we know from scripture. Not our human understanding, but how does it line, align with the word of God? Does that hopefully answer that? Now, ready? Women, don't be mad at me. Don't shoot the messenger. So in the ancient world, just as in some modern cultures, men and women sat in different groups at the church. They sat in different groups. Among the Christians in Corinth, uh, there, there were problems of women chattering and disrupting uh, the meeting, the church service, the worship service. Now, don't laugh. Some of you are like, that sounds like my spouse. Um, Paul is saying, Paul is saying here, do not disrupt the meeting. Do not disrupt the meeting. You know, in the Jewish synagogue of Paul's day, if a woman chattered or called out her husband sitting afar off from him, she would have been dealt with severely by the priest or one of the Levites. Then I'm not talking like, hey, don't do that. Like she would have been reprimanded to the furthest extent, almost to the fact of being put out to the same place as were the Gentiles, not even allowed into the courtyard uh, of, of the church. And many women from the Gentile background did not know how to conduct themselves in a church meeting. And so Paul is teaching them how. He's explaining to them how. Now real quick, uh, because people may, there are some denominations out there, and I'm not going to name them, but there are some denominations that give us the mentality of women should be seen and not heard, okay? Paul is using the ancient word, the ancient Greek verb here, laleo, which means to question, to argue, to chatter, or to criticize. Those are our four English words come from this. And so Paul is just, is telling, he's directing it at the women because the women were the ones that were having the issue with this. Now, please don't read into that. Husbands, don't go home and say, see, it says right here in scripture that you're the, you're the problem. That's, please don't do that. Please don't do that at all. But he is saying, um, do not argue, do not chatter. And it really, he's talking about all Christians. Uh, don't, when, when you're, you're here and someone is up in front speaking, um, your attention should be on the word of God that is being spoken. Why? Because we should have a reverence for the word of God. Um, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be carrying on a conversation you shouldn't be carrying on a text conversation. You shouldn't be on social media on your phone. You shouldn't be playing games on your phone. You, as the word of God has spoken, you should be engaging in um, and listening intently to the word of God so that the Holy Spirit can minister to you uh, and you can walk away challenged and encouraged every single Sunday when you're here. Um, you know, our, our church lives in such a, a technological state uh, that we oftentimes um, are pulled away and distracted uh, when the word of God is being spoken and, and when worship is happening and we're supposed to be engaging the Lord through song. Um, and, and, and really, it's just a challenge. Uh, don't, don't be, uh, he says, right? He's talking about and referring to Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter four, he says, don't be like the Gentiles who are darkened in their mind. Don't be like the Gentiles who are darkened in their mind, meaning they have no understanding of truth. No reverence for God. No awe 
uh, in their worship. 